Peace girl, peace The English translation of this Cree prayer song by Carmel Crowchild. All things holy under the sun bless me. All things holy under the sun bless creation. Hello, my friendly folks. This podcast is going out on November 18th, but I'm pre-recording it because I am on November 18th doing interviews for Access Now of some really interesting people. And coincidentally, there's going to be some interviews that relate to grief, which you're going to hear a little bit about in this episode, as well as First Nations issues and really understanding how First Nations philosophies and the medicine wheel and looking at the facets of our life like spirituality and mental wellness and emotional wellness and physical wellness really affect how we do just in general. Today's episode is going to be a lot more reading than ranting. Um, because it's quite late when I'm recording it, and I just don't feel like ranting. So, enjoy. Jimmy and Linda stood outside the house, assessing the crime scene. What a fucking mess, Linda voiced with characteristic vehemence. Jimmy shook his head and looked at the yard, draped in bright yellow crime scene tape. Jimmy thought the solve on this would be easy. Thanks to Anna, they definitely made it to the scene quickly, and he'd seen some clear prints and a shotgun. Surely the gun used in the shooting had been found quickly in the backyard. It wasn't going to be easy to identify the woman, though, unless her prints were on file. Hopefully they'd find a suspect soon or be able to talk with some of the people at the party. Jimmy and Linda headed closer to the garage and gathered officers as they went. All the televised CSIs and Bones shows couldn't express how things really were in the field. There wasn't the same level of ability, resources, or even the abundance of matching clues that were found on the shows. Solves needed to be made on facts, not assumptions. The officers would be briefed and dispatched to begin collecting evidence. Trunks were opened and evidence bags shifted to the shoulders as the crew moved towards the grisly scene. By the time they finished, many of the bags would contain drugs and paraphernalia. Photographs would be taken of everything before gathering, including the body. The wheezy, sleepy coroner, a huge fellow with the unlikely name of Eddie Breatheasy showed up to perform his duties of pronouncing death and claiming the body. An autopsy would be performed. Breatheasy, Jimmy moved forward to shake the man's hand. The effort of getting out of the vehicle seemed to affect Eddie in a negative way, and he held up his hand before holding it out to Jimmy. Jimmy, good to see you again. How's the family? Good, good, Eddie. How are you doing? Been better, Jimmy. Gotta lose some of this weight. Ha! Ah. The rewards of too much good living, Jimmy. Eddie wiped his head with the ever-present handkerchief used for various tasks from wiping his forehead to holding over his mouth to protect from dead body stench to, God forbid, using it to pick up pieces of evidence. What do we got here? It's a bad one, Eddie. Appears to be a shooting, but I'll let you have a look. They entered the bedroom with Eddie huffing and puffing from his journey up the stairs. Jimmy wondered how he ever kept up with his work. 
Eddie walked over to the body and bent over her the best he could. All righty, all righty, little miss. What do we got here? Oh, you're having a bad day, all right. And to Jimmy, do we need a time of death right away? Time of death is pretty well established based on eyewitness evidence. While Jimmy watched, Eddie started rooting around in his bottomless bag to produce the necessary tools for his job. He pronounced death and took various temperature readings, jotting it all down for transfer into the proper forms. Does this little lady have a name? Eddie asked. Eddie was nothing if not respectful of the dead. While he could be sarcastic and cutting with the living, the dead were off limits for jokes, sarcasm, or disrespect. As he worked with the body, it seemed like his weight fell away, leaving a dignified, gentle, and capable man. He was known to say, If your work is based on other people's misery, extra kindness is in order. He had no harsh words for people who had died or for their loved ones. He had little tolerance for people who didn't do their job well. Right now, her name is Jane. We're working on it. As Eddie lumbered towards his car, he stopped and put his hand on Jimmy's shoulder. You do right by her and take care of yourself. Eddie left, the body left, and the evidence collection went on. As I walked back to the children, I wondered, as I so frequently seem to do these days, how anyone can stay in a child protection position for the long term. This was only my third year, and I could feel the burnout taking hold. I wanted to cry for what these children had witnessed today, and I knew I couldn't. Knew that I had to hold myself together. Three deep breaths to try to calm the adrenaline, and I approached the children. They were sitting quietly on the couch, still pale-faced and big-eyed, but the screaming had stopped, and the girl had her arms around the boy, rocking him gently. I decided to try a different approach and looked around the playroom to see what I could find. Hey, look at this stuff, I exclaimed as I opened a cupboard door and took out some blocks, cars, and dolls. I put the small toy boxes into the center of the floor. The children started to look interested. I calmly set the dolls up to watch the show and started building a ramp with the blocks. The children leaned forward on the couch, the girl's arm falling away from the boy. As she kept moving forward, she motioned to him with her head to come down onto the floor. They sat in identical positions, bum on feet and hands on knees, and watched me build with the blocks. Once a ramp was built, I asked to no one in particular, which car should I use on the ramp? The boy made a hand motion to the girl, and so quietly that I almost couldn't hear her, she said, use the blue one. I picked up the blue car and asked, this one? She nodded, yes. I asked the boy, would you like to run the car down the ramp? His eyes lit up as he reached out for the car and moved closer to the toys. I handed him the car and said, I don't know your name, but I need to call you something. I think I'd like to call you Tommy. Again, so quietly I could hardly hear her, the girl spoke. His name is Jonas. He doesn't talk. That's okay, honey. I'm sure glad that you do. What's your name? Mariah. What a beautiful name. Is Jonas your brother? Yes. Jonas looked up from the cars as his sister talked. Every once in a while, he would touch her hand. Do you have other names? Mariah Susanna Pelchier. I'm eight years old, she responded. Wow, that's pretty old, eight years. Does your brother have other names too? 
Jonas Jackson Pelchier. He's six. He's mine to take care of. A little taken aback by her last statement, I asked, Where are your parents, Mariah? Not. Not what? Not allowed to talk. Mariah and Jonas kept playing with the dolls in the cars. Mariah wouldn't answer any more of my questions. Even questions about their play were met by her stony silence, and sometimes she would glare at me. I hoped I hadn't made her stop talking completely with my questions about her parents. What horrors these children must have experienced. Helen came back into the room and smiled to see the children playing on the floor. Well, that's nice that you found some toys. And to me, come into the hall, I need to talk to you. Outside the insulated family room, the hospital was a beehive of activity. Helen quickly drew me into an empty doorway. Mark says the kids do not have to be subjected to the light. Stan just wants to play with some new toy. We haven't even talked to any adults yet. It may be easier than we think to find out their names. Did you have any luck? I did, so Stan can take his white light and shine it on his dried up old soul. Mariah Susanna Pelchier is eight years old and Jonas Jackson Pelchier is six years old. Can you believe it? They look at least two years younger than that. Poor nutrition, probably. Mariah says Jonas doesn't talk. She barely talks, and when I asked her about her parents, she said she wasn't allowed to talk. What do you think that's about? Oh, I wouldn't even want to guess. Good job to get them playing. We need to get them back to being kids as soon as possible. Mark is calling foster parents to see who can take them. Everyone's pretty full up, so it could be tough. We moved back towards the family room and stopped just outside the door. Mariah was talking quietly to Jonas, and we strained to hear what she was saying. Watch out, Jonas. Remember the bad people. We have to keep on watching out for us. Mama was on the floor because the bad people got her. Remember, we don't even know who is bad and who is good. You don't talk, Jonas. Remember not to ever, 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 ever talk. Ever. I shifted in the doorway and Mariah stopped talking immediately and looked up. She went back to dressing one of, the, one of the dolls, a blank expression on her face. Helen and I looked at each other, shocked by what we had overheard. What did this mean? Was Jonas able to talk? Did Mariah make him stop talking? Who were the bad people? Who was the woman killed at the party? Who did these children belong to? Lots of questions and hardly any answers. Does your child come home from school crying? Do you even really know what's going on in your child's life? Has your child told you about bullying and have you no idea how to approach it? Have you already gone to the school and it seems like they're not going to do anything? At no such thing as a bully, we share the tools with parents to strengthen themselves and their children so they can deal with any situation that life throws at them. Find more information about parent memberships at nosuchthingasabully.com. Let me just talk a little bit about No Such Thing as a Bully. I have so many people that have offered to make commercials and I just keep using 
Carmel's commercial over and over because I need to build the other commercials. No such thing as a bully has helped a lot of people. It started when I was involved in advocating for 20 sets of parents who objected to how a principal slash teacher of a grade six class was teaching their children. It was a really wonderful and horrible experience all at the same time. And it started me really thinking about how we are dealing with bullying and how we could be dealing with bullying. And also how the labels don't help. I was bullied from kindergarten, grade one to grade six. And I came back and I bullied other people. Was I a victim or was I a, was I a bully? The labels do not help. No such thing as a bully says. We all use bully actions. We all use victim responses. One set of skills solves both. The labels don't help. The opposite of bullying is kindness. And we get more of that on which we focus. If you're interested in learning more, just hit me up. I am happy to talk about this all day long. And now, on to the story. The secret to the counselors and the doctors said there was something wrong. Fools. They don't know about the children, and they don't care about the children. Just ask them. Ask when was the last time they reported an abusive parent. Oh, something wrong. Baloney. Phony. Phony baloney. They know nothing. See nothing. And they certainly know nothing about this. There is no one to talk to about this. No one but the voices. The voices always understand. Love the children. Keep the children safe. Love the children. Keep the children safe. Protect them from harm. Keep away the night. The fists, the kicks, the pushes, the shoves, the name-calling, the whips, the rocks, the negligence. Keep it all away. Love the children. Keep the children safe. Protect them from harm. And still the mantra and the mission went on and on and on. Jimmy and I grew up in a home where people had issues. I was eight when dad died, and Jimmy was 12, going on 20. Mom always hated dad's career. I think she knew before it happened that the job was going to take dad away from her, one way or another. Whether or not she knew didn't matter because she sure did believe it. Mom had an anxiety disorder and would frequently have panic attacks while dad was on shift. Dad had to phone home every couple of hours to see how things were and to reassure her that he was all right. Some days were better than others. Sometimes it seemed like mom almost forgot what dad was doing. We'd come home from a school to a house as happy and warm as a roaring fire. At other times, her anxiety would take over and become all she could think about. On those days, Jimmy took care of me and did his best to take care of her too. He made sure I got to school, prepared meals, and took me to the park. Some days he stayed home from school to take care of mom. Dad never knew about those days. 
Both mom and Jimmy knew that dad would never have allowed that. Dad's career was his passion and he felt mom just had to deal with it. He was willing to phone home every couple of hours to put her mind at ease, but quit the force? Never. I remember the arguments about it. And I remember mom playing the guilt card with dad, telling him that he didn't care about us if he kept on working with the RCMP. Telling him that he didn't love her. Telling us that he didn't love us. I remember the day dad died. Mom answered the phone, her hands shaking with anxiety, even as she raised the phone to her ear. Her hello was weak and ineffectual. I could hear the tinny voice on the other end of the phone. The doorbell rang in the silence as my mother stood shaking. Two officers, I can't remember their names, but I remember their faces as though it was yesterday, standing tall, taller than I ever remembered my dad standing, and my dad always seemed as tall as a thousand-year-old redwood. One of them knelt down and took my hand, magically producing a quarter from behind my ear. My heart roared with delight. Then Mother turned away from the phone, and I could see the look of stricken anguish on her face. I I imagined that I could hear the sound of nails on a chalkboard as the sounds around me faded away. Even without the sounds... I knew what the men were saying to my mother. She fell to the floor on her knees, pulling her dress up to cover her face. I could see her underwear, and I was embarrassed for her. I heard nothing, and I felt nothing, except a feeling that something must be wrong with me. Jimmy came running down the stairs, gathering mother up and helping her to a chair. He shed tears as he tried to comfort mum. I stood alone, emotionless and scared, frozen to the spot. Later on, I looked at my hand and I saw the imprint of the quarter that came from behind my ear. I'd been squeezing it hard enough to almost tattoo it into my palm. I spent a long time in the bathroom trying to wash it away, believing that if I could wash it away, then Dad would come in, just as soon as there was no mark on my hand. I awoke in the morning and the mark was gone. Rushing to my parents' room, I found my mom huddled in her bed, the floor littered with tissues, and I knew for real that he wasn't coming home again. The first thing mom said that day was that he didn't listen to her and he died, and we'd best listen to her now because she knows best how to keep us safe. My own anxiety grew and I believed that some unknown monster got my dad and was going to come and get me. I believed that because I didn't always walk home the way my mom said to, and because I didn't always listen to her about cleaning my room, the monster would come get me too. It wasn't until years later that I learned the facts about my father's death. He had died in a car accident during a high-speed chase. It was thought that the car he was driving had a faulty axle, resulting in a rollover. Dad was killed instantly. When the other car was finally stopped, officers approached the window to find a terrified 13-year-old boy senseless. After all these years, I still grieved for my father and wished that I could have grown to know him. Mom raised us in guilt and anxiety for the rest of our childhood. I've learned to identify that guilt card and let it roll off my back. Mostly, anyway. Jimmy's not so good at it. Mom can still get him to come running with a wiggle of her pinky finger. Part of it is that she's never forgiven him for joining the RCMP, and he feels bad about that. Not bad enough to phone her every two hours, but he sure talks to her more than I do. 
After dad died, things just kept on falling apart in our home. Now we not only had an anxious mother, but money was tight too. In her grief, mom wasn't very good at paying bills. She was good at buying cigarettes, junk food, and quite a bit of vodka. But rent, power, and water came a distant second to the satisfaction of her sensory needs. We spent time in and out of foster care. She spent time in and out of treatment in psych wards. The worst times were when I was separated from Jimmy. After about a million counseling sessions, I've realized now that I pegged dad as a hero and mom as an ogre, probably because of the way she used to badmouth him. My picture of my parents and my relationship with them seems ever-changing, even though dad is dead. Sometimes I want their approval. Sometimes I couldn't care less. Sometimes I'm angry with them, dad for dying and mom for being mom. Sometimes I just want a chance to hug them both and tell them everything will be all right. And sometimes I want to be hugged and told everything will be all right. My home situation, both before and after Dad died, wasn't conducive to getting good grades. By grade 12, I didn't care if I graduated or not. I had a steady boyfriend, the love of my life, and we had plans to be married after graduation. Part of me saw him as my escape from home, my savior. Bill was like a great big teddy bear. He was always so concerned about what everyone else needed, and indeed, made helping people his life's work. I was always proud to be a part of his life. We never had much money, but we had big plans. Bill and I were married right out of high school, just like we planned. Advice for me from for young lovers? Wait, maybe, work a year or two, build some savings on your own. Learn independence. Girls, learn how to change a tire. Bill and I were happy right until the end, though. Happy without being happy. We knew we had something special, something that a lot of people didn't have. I remember being so angry, though, and I I can't even imagine what Bill went through. I think the day we received his cancer diagnosis and the day he died were the two worst days for me. The doctor coldly pronouncing a life sentence. The instant pain in my heart would become all too familiar to me over the next year and beyond. We faked it, sort of. It wasn't really faking because we both knew we were doing it. How difficult it is to hope for the best but know only the worst is ahead. When he died ten months later, a connection was broken. I wasn't even in his room when he took his final breath. I'd gone out to get a muffin and came back to the commotion that a daytime death brings at a hospital. I think I shouted at him, angry that he would die while I was getting a muffin. I'd broken my promise to be with him till the end. I know I threw the muffin and the coffee out of garbage can, and I don't think they went in. After Bill died, I realized that I knew nothing about paying bills, running a household, or holding down a job. I'd taken some social work classes inspired by the community garage that Bill had organized and where he'd worked until his death. We'd planned to have children, but we were waiting for a while until the garage was more established and I'd taken more classes. Now I was sorry that we'd waited. I wish I had a little piece of Bill or two. Bill's been gone for five years. My growing pains have been extreme. No Bill, no children, a hard-to-handle mother. Thank goodness for Jimmy. So much was going through my head as I drove to the station with the children. Helen was in the back seat with them. Mariah had started talking again, but she was saying nothing of great significance. Just some play talk and some comforting words to Jonas. 
I could hear Helen trying to explain where we were headed. We're going to the police station so that we can all tell the police officers what we heard and saw today. I'm going to talk to them, and so is Anna. We hope you'll talk to them too. They'll be able to help us with this. The children both looked frightened, and Mariah reiterated softly and firmly, not allowed to talk. I met Helen's eyes in the rearview mirror, two sets of eyes looking shocked and dismayed. What was going on with these kids? Ah, dysfunctional families at their finest. We all know one, or probably we might be part of one. That's where we're going to stop for today. Thank you so much for listening, my friendly folks with an X. If you'd like to learn more about how to support No Such Thing as a Bully, or more just about No Such Thing as a Bully, hit me up. We've got some free training going on with uh, Three Days Strong, and I would be happy to involve you in that. Blessings to everyone. Have a wonderful day. This is Kelly Carius with One Week in August.